All right. So we will continue our, our series on the, the attributes of God. It's been some, some time since we last did this. So I thought it would be a, a, t a good time to go back to that, the attributes of God. We still have some more that I want to do. And for this Sunday, I want to do the wisdom of God. We'll have a look at what wisdom, the wisdom of God is, what it means, the definition of it, and how we can see it in the Bible in three different ways. So, beloveds, let's have a look at the wisdom of God. And let's begin with a little bit of a definition so that we know what we're talking about. What, what is wisdom? What is the difference between wisdom and knowledge? Knowledge is a as we have seen before, God has all knowledge. God knows everything. He has all data. He can see every detail that happens in the whole universe. There is not a, an atom flying out there in the vastness of space. That is not known to God. He has every kind of knowledge that you can have. Nothing is hidden from him as we read in the psalm today. He knows everything. He has created everything. Therefore, he knows everything. But with wisdom, we, that's not really the same thing as knowledge. Wisdom is how you apply all that knowledge for the best use. Or <clears throat> as, as I've written down here, that you, you, you use all the knowledge and the power that you have for the best purpose. So God is om, om, omnipotent, omnipotent. God has all power and God is omniscient. He knows everything. But God's wisdom is that he can use all that knowledge and use all that power for the best. God, can, God has the insight, the understanding, how to use the various means to achieve those ends which he has appointed them to. So that is the short definition of what is the wisdom of God, that he can act in a way to accomplish all that he has set out to do. He had, what he has planned in eternity past, he will accomplish, and that is the wisdom of God. <clears throat> now, the Hebrew word for wisdom is chokmah, or something like that. It's, I apologize if my pronunciation is way off, but it's, it's, it's chokmah, and it can mean also skill which tells us a little bit more about what the wisdom of God is. It, it, it shows us that God is skillful to uh, act in a way to accomplish that which he, he has planned, what, what he has planned to do. He uses his omnipotence, he uses his omniscience skillfully, like a, a good craftsman. He can form the things he needs to form, he can plan the, the, the perfect plans. He is skillful in what he does. He uses his power, he uses his knowledge to the best, and that, that requires an act of wisdom. We know we can have some kind of power. There are people with more power, and we have probably less power. And there is, we can have knowledge. Some people are more knowledgeable, knowledgeable, smarter. They have more knowledge, and some people have less. But to have a lot of power and a lot of knowledge does not mean that you are a wise man that you use it for the best. We know people who are very powerful and very smart, perhaps, but they use it horribly. They use it for all kinds of selfish means. They become corrupt. That is usually what happens when people get lots of power and lots of, of uh, knowledge. They become corrupt. But God is not corrupt. God is not unable 
to use his power and, and knowledge to the best. He is wise. He knows exactly how to use it to accomplish that which he has set out to do. So Charles Hodge wrote this, The wisdom of, his, of God is the selection of proper ends and proper means for the accomplishment of those ends. It means that God chooses, God ordains, God governs all things. Not only the ends, but he governs also the means to, to those ends. He governs the end, which is, for example, the salvation of his people, but he also governs the means, the way by which we are saved, the people that we meet, the conversations that we have, the, pre the sermons that we hear. He governs that and the ends as well. So this is, we see this, we call this the God's, the providence of God, that God is, is, is uh, uh, controlling God, uh, is, is uh, governing everything in creation, in the natural world, in the, in the uh, affairs of man, in the affairs of individuals, our thoughts, our, our um, conversations. That is the providence of God. And God's wisdom extends to providence as well. He accomplishes everything through his providence. That is one thing I want us to look at. I have three different sections for this sermon today that we will look at God's wisdom through three different uh, categories. And the first one we'll look at is God's wisdom in creation. We'll have a look at how God's wisdom can be seen in creation. Then we'll look at God's wisdom in providence, as I already mentioned. And lastly, God's wisdom in salvation. So those three points or categories will used to study God's wisdom. So let's begin with the first one, God's wisdom in creation. How can we see God's wisdom in creation? There is a lot we could say, and I, as I prepared this Sunday, I, I, I thought of what would be what would be good to say here? There's, there's so much we could go to, to people like uh, Ken Ham and, and, and other people who, who uh, have these kinds of ministries that studies creation very, very in, uh, in depth. They, they, they have a lot, they have an, even a website, Answers in Genesis, where you can go and you can type into their search field and you find all kinds of interesting articles and material, different things about creation. And uh, as, I, as I thought about that, should I, should I go into that? Should I use some of that? But first and foremost, let's, let's begin with something that's close to us. Let's look at ourselves, our own human body and our own human soul, our spirit. Now, the psalm that we read today, you know what it says, Psalm 139, verse 14, said that we, we, we are wonderfully made. We're wonderfully made. God's wisdom is seen in our own bodies, in our souls. We are wonderfully made. We have both body and soul. Think about that. You think about that sometimes, that we have both body and soul, or body and spirit. We, we, you, you could go on, see uh, online and see robots and, and machines that man has designed, and they are very impressive. They can do very impressive stuff. I recently saw a video from... Uh, what they're called, Boston Dynamics. I don't know if you know what Boston Dynamics is. It's a, it's a technology, technology company who, who makes robots, who mimics mm, human behavior, animal behavior. Very impressive, very interesting to see. I don't know if they're very useful, but they look very interesting 
today. I just I recently saw a video where there was two robots who did a parkour course. They just jumped over obstacles, jumped over uh, distances, made somersaults. Do you know that robots can make somersaults? I can make a somersault, but a robot can. Some people can as well, but I can. Very, very impressive. They were very uh, acrobatic in that sense. You can see that men can make robots that look very much like a human. They act like a human. They, they have the same kind of movements, or similar at least. So we see that in our capabilities, our, there are this, these kinds of things that you can make robots. You, we know about AI. AI is just on everybody's mind this, these days. It's what are we going to do with AI? Is AI going to become smarter than us? Is AI going to take over? Is it going to do all our jobs? Perhaps. AI is an interesting tool. Let's call it that. It's an interesting tool. Scary, but interesting. Is AI something that will replace man? Or do we see the wisdom of God in the fact that God has created man with both a body and a soul? And when we can create machines or robots who mimic human beings, and AI who with their intelligence mimic our way of thinking, we know that there are no such robot, there is no such AI who has self-awareness, as it is called. There is no, there's no robot or AI who can, who have a soul, who have a spirit, who have both a body and a spirit, who can worship God, who can communicate with God, or who can even think for themselves. See, AI is not able to think for itself. It always follows some kind of pattern, some kind of model. But God created man perfectly. He created us. He, he made us wonderful, body and soul. The human being is the most wonderful robot or machine in creation in the universe. There is no such, there's nothing like it. Animals have, have life, they have biological life in themselves. They can procreate, they can be spread out. But animals don't have souls. They can't worship God. They can't communicate with their creator. They are put under the care of humans. God made us perfect, wonderfully made wonderfully made. We have a soul. We have a spirit that can communicate with God. Or as, uh, as the prophet Ezekiel said in, the, in chapter 37 on the, uh, of, the, of the book that's called the book of Ezekiel, that God could form from dead bones. He literally takes dead bones. He puts them together. He puts sinews on them. He puts flesh on it. He covers it with, with skin so that it looks like a human being, but there's still no life in it. Then what, then what is God doing? He breathes life into those flesh, in that flesh and in those bones, and it becomes alive. It has a spirit. Never ever will man be able to breathe life into a robot, to give it a spirit, to give it a soul, to be, give it the ability to communicate with God. This is the wisdom of God in creating ourselves. In, same thing happened in Eden. When he created Adam, when he created Eve, he breathed life into them. 
the wisdom of God in creation is that he creates that unique life form that no one, no, no one in creation can create. No robot, no animal. We can clone animals. We have been able to do that for some time now. We have been able to clone cats and sheep and whatever. But we cannot, we cannot breathe life into them as God can. So this is the, the wisdom of God in creation. As long as God is, and he always is, he is wise. He is more wise than man in creation. And then secondly, of course, we can look at Len. The planet which, on which we stand, the, the, the world in which we live. And again, we could go to Answers in Genesis, and well, you found all kinds of interesting articles there. You could spend days just studying that. I, I had to be careful as I prepared not to get to emerge into all the, the material that is there. It's, it's, it's so much good stuff. Really, really recommend it. So, uh, have, you, have you looked at the world, the earth, and pondered? God's wisdom in creating the earth. Do you, do you realize how much wisdom it went into creating this planet? You, you can, if you like, go and have a look at all the other planets in the solar system. Every single one of them have some kind of defect. It cannot house life. Most are too far away. They're too cold or they're gas planets. They will not, you will not be able to, there's no soil, there's no... Uh, no solid stuff to stand on. It's just gas. Or some are too close, you'll, you'll burn up, it's too hot. The sun is too close, you'll, you'll just burn away. The earth is in the perfect zone, it's in the habitable zone. It is just perfect where it is, where it hangs in space. God has hanged it in space. There's no wires keeping it there, it's just perfect. Perfect. The gravitational force that keeps earth spinning around the sun in the perfect orbit the wisdom of God in that or the fact that God has has covered us with a, a, an atmosphere and a, a magnetic field a magnetic field that will protect us from harmful radiation from the Sun and from the space he has protect, he has made a, a, a an atmosphere with clouds that will protect us from even more radiation that the magnetic field will not cover he has he has spun the earth so it has 24-hour uh, cycles. We have a, a day and we have a night. It, he balances out the heat and the cold so that we can live. It's not, he, he, he could have made it so that there is always warm on one side and always cold on the other, as in the case with, uh, with some other planets and the moon, for example. The moon spins much slower than the Earth. So it's really long days and really long nights. We had that, we would not probably not be able to live. We'd always have to move, move around with the sun to be able to live. But God, in his wisdom, gives us a, a perfect 24-hour cycle. He has given us, I a, a just recently learned about this, that, or not, not, not this particular thing, but we have tectonic plates that moves. Do you know the, the wisdom, the wonder in that as well? Our tectonic plates that moves? The good thing about that, it means that we have, we have volcanoes, but they never grow very big. They're always just so big. On Mars, who, whose tectonic plates don't move, they have a giant volcano. It's 24 kilometers tall. It's called uh, Olympus Mons. 
is the tallest mountain in the solar system because the tectonic plates don't move so it can just grow and grow and grow and when it explodes it would literally devastate everything if there was life there. But God realized we cannot have a volcano who builds up to a giant beast and ends all life. He has moving tectonic plates. Wisdom of God. Or the fact that we have mountains and we have uh, land masses who, who perfectly balances out the, the vast bodies of water. We had uh, all land mass concentrated in one place, we would have huge waves. If we didn't have mountains, we would have huge winds. The mountains kill down the winds. The landmass kill down the waves. There is one place on Earth where there is no land, where the waves can just roam around, grow very, very big. It's called the Drake Passage, south of South America. Very dangerous waters. If you ever go there, please don't go there. Very, it's the most dangerous waters in the world. Have huge waves, because there's no landmass to, to stop it. If the wave just it goes on and on and just circles the Earth. Never stops. Oh, the wisdom of God. Where we live, there's barely any waves at all. Go to the beach here, there's tiny, tiny waves. Perfect. God makes everything perfect. It's so wise. It's so perfect. It's so... Take the air that you breathe. We breathe in oxygen. We need oxygen. You breathe out carbon dioxide. Who needs carbon dioxide? Everybody knows this. Plants need and plants take carbon dioxide and produce oxygen. Oh, the wisdom of God in this perfect balance. He, what, who could have come up with such a thing? Oh, the wisdom of God. And one more thing. I, I just, just recently learned of this. The hexagon. You know what a hexagon is? It's a shape. It's a polygon with six equal sides. The hexagon is the bestagon, as someone called it. It's the perfect shape. It is everywhere in the universe. It is the strongest structure that you can think of. You, you know, uh, if you go on an airplane and uh, you see the, the wings move when you go into turbulent winds, they, they must be able to, to flex. They must be very strong in the fact that the, the different wind patterns will make them move, will make them flex, but they don't break. And why don't they break? Why don't they tear? Because they have what's called as a honeycomb structure or honeycomb pattern in those wings. There are lots of small hexagons in those wings. You open up, you take away the, the outer layer and you'll find small, small hexagons all over the place because it is an incredibly strong structure. You find it everywhere. It's, it, it calls, it's called honeycomb because you find it in honeycombs. You look at a honeycomb, it's small hexagons everywhere. You get the maximum amount of space with the least amount of wall. It's everywhere, it's perfect. It's as if there's a designer behind it. And there it is, there is a, a wise designer behind it. the wisdom of God in creation. I could go on and on with this. I, I literally researched so much stuff and I had to cut away 95%. You, we all know those who have preached who is so painful. You have so much, you want to tell everybody all the stuff you have learned. Go and look up the hexagon. It's, it's wonderful. I, I can't even tell you all the magnificent stuff of the hexagon. It shows the wisdom. It shows the designer behind it is a wise man or man, a wise God. Look it up, hexagon. 
The creation itself witnesses to the wisdom of God. Psalm 19.1 says the heavens are telling of the glory of God and their expanse is declaring the works of his hands. Creation is telling us of the wisdom of God. Just look at it. Just study it. Just be marveled by it. Oh, the, uh, the colors, the, uh, the tastes, the, the, the harmonies, the, the melodious harmonies. How God could have created everything dull and boring and gray, but he didn't. He, made, he gave us colors. He gave us food that tastes differently, food and drink. He gave us songs that we have sung today who are different and who, who have different harmonies and different melodies. Oh, the wisdom of God in creation. Where does it stop? We ha- I don't think we have even discovered a-, a fraction of all the wisdom of God in creation. The more we discover, the more we see God's wisdom in creation. If you ever hear about a guy called Jason Lyle, you should go and check him up. He, he is the smartest man alive. I've- he-, he can explain so much... Uh, Stuff that I have no idea what, what it is even talk, what he's even talking about. But he sounds really smart. And he's really smart. He's a Christian and he knows what he's talking about. Jason Olai, he, he's a wonderful guy. Anyway, let's get back to the actual sermon. Um, so we see God's wisdom in creation everywhere. Isn't that what Romans 1 is talking about? That there is no excuse for anyone. Believer or unbeliever. All the evidence is there. You study creation. You study yourself. You study the world. You see God's pattern everywhere. You see it in math. In mathematics. The the horrible subject that everybody hates. You see God there. You see it in in physics. You see it in in, uh, biology. You see it in geography. You see it everywhere. You see it in music. You see it in art. Just... You can't escape it. God's wisdom, God's hand, his DNA or whatever, his fingerprint is everywhere. You cannot escape it. The more you study, the more evidence you will have of God's existence. And this is the wisdom of God. That his hands, his wise hands are seen in the created realm. Oh, the wisdom of God in creation. Now, I, I could say more, but we, I'll, I'll move on to the wisdom of God in providence. So I'll, I want to talk a little bit about that as well before we come to the last point, which is the most important one. The wisdom of God in providence. What is providence? I already told you it is how God ordains, how God controls, how God governs everything. He governs the means and he governs the ends. God is in control of every atom in space. He's in control of every supernova. He's in control of both the small and the big. He's in control of man's thoughts. He's in control of man's affairs in the natural world. In the affairs of man, God is in control. That is the providence of man. So how do we see the wisdom of God in providence? We know, we who are believers, what, we have a verse that we always turn to, we, we who seek God, we who love Him, we who know that He has governed everything in our lives and continues to do so. In Romans 8, 28, the verse is, uh, 
everything works out to the best for those who love God. Everything works out to the best. It doesn't work out to the best for those who don't love God, but for those who are his children, everything works to the best. It is for the best because God is in control of everything in providence. He's in control of our thoughts, of our conversations, of our daily lives. There's nothing that, where God is not and where God doesn't put his hand on it, allows it. He allows good deeds, but he also allows evil deeds. He controls them. He uses them for his glory. We know from the, uh, the story of Job, we who have the book of Job, but poor Job didn't have the book of Job. He did not know why things were happening, why everything was taken away from him. Why was his children killed? Why was his, uh, all his possession taken away? Why was he struck with illness? God, I don't understand. Yet we see the wisdom of God in this as well. How God allowed all these things to happen. These evil things. God, Job was innocent in this way, though he had his friends come over, which wasn't very good friends, to be fairly honest. And they tried to put the blame on him and say, Job, you have some unrepentant sin in your life. You just need to repent and all, thing will, will, all will be great. All will be well. Just repent, Job. Just repent. But Job, no, there, there is no thing. I, I have always tried to, I've always sacrificed to, to the Lord. I always sought his will. There is nothing. There is nothing. God has put this on me. Yet, it was not for no reason. There was a reason behind it. And we who have the book of Job, we who are so blessed to know that the reason behind it is, of course, that God showed through Job that he doesn't need all the stuff that he has. He doesn't need a family. He doesn't need animals. He doesn't need money to be a faithful servant. He showed to Satan, the devil, he will not curse me even if I take away all the things because he is mine. I uphold him. I strengthen him. I give him everything he needs. I give him the grace to live, the grace to believe. The wisdom of God in using even the evil things in life. And there are, of course, more than, than, than one occasion where, where God uses evil, where God uses sin. We, we all know of the story of Joseph, don't we? Let's go to, let's, let's look at our Bibles for, for, let's stop listening to this man and listen to what the Bible says. Genesis chapter 50, let's, let's have a look at Joseph, one of the sons of Jacob, the sons of Israel. And uh, we all know what happened to Joseph, the, the, uh, the story of uh, of Joseph was that he was uh, uh, sold into slavery by his brothers. They took him, they were jealous of him, they took him, threw him into a, a pit, then sold him into slavery. He came to Egypt, he was uh, uh, in the household of Potiphar. Potiphar's wife tried to sexually, uh, uh, I just lost the word, tried to make advancements on him, but he, he resisted, he fled, and Unfairly so, he was, put, he was put in prison because Potiphar's wife lied and said that he had advanced me. He was he who tried to, to, 
to have sexual intercourse with me, even though we know it was the other way around. So we see that Joseph's life was filled with unfairness, with un, uh, unrighteousness, with, with injustice. He was sold into slavery. He was put in prison. Why? Because through prison, he came into contact with uh, two servants in the household of Pharaoh, the king in, of Egypt. And by interpreting their dreams, by helping them, he was later helped. He came into the household of uh, Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And he was able to interpret the dream of the king of Egypt. He was raised to be the second man in command in all of Egypt. He was given the task to prepare for the coming famine where there would be seven years of famine, there would be seven hard years. And so he could store up food and money and everything, resources that they need for those seven years that would come. And through that, Joseph's brothers were sent to Egypt. They too were suffering from this famine. They didn't have food to eat. They had nothing. And they had to come to Egypt to buy some, some, uh, some grain. And uh, uh, he met them there. They didn't recognize him. He put them to the test. Had them take Benjamin, their youngest brother, to him to see, to test them. He, they, they did. And then he revealed himself to them and said, I am Joseph. I'm your brother. Is, my, is our father alive? And they had a great rejoicing. And later came Jacob and his whole family came to Egypt as well. And they lived in, in relative prosperity there in, in Egypt. And all of this happened because God is wise in providence. God uses even the evil things. So let's, let's have a look at, uh, just read a few verses from verse 15 in chapter 50. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, What if Joseph bears a grudge against us and pays us back in full for all the wrong which we did to him? So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father charged before he died, saying, Thus you shall say to Joseph, Please forgive, please forgive, I beg you, the transgression of your brothers and their sin, for they did you wrong. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of God, of of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Then his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for am I in God's place? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, in order to bring about this present result, to preserve many people alive. So therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. So he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Here we see how God's wisdom overrules the evil intentions of man. They meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. How God is able to use even that which is evil for his pleasure, for his purposes, in order to to save many people. Think about that. Think that so many injustices, so many sins would be committed through this, and yet God would make something much greater, something much bigger than anyone could ever thought of. God uses evil to accomplish that which he has set out to do. 
He uses the evil deeds of men, the evil intentions. And where do we see that more clearly than in any other case? In the crucifixion of Christ. In the death of our Lord. In the unfair, unjust treatment of Jesus Christ. How he was put to death. Literally executed for sins or for crimes he had not committed. He was truly innocent. The only innocent person ever in history was put to death. The greatest sin ever committed. The greatest injustice. A man who was perfect. Who kept God's law perfectly. No other man can keep God's law perfectly. But he did. And yet he was put to death. He was executed by the ones who were supposed to know God. By the Jewish leaders. Yet God used this unspeakable evil to accomplish the greatest of goods. He accomplished salvation of his people through an evil that we cannot even describe. Oh, the wisdom of God in providence. Using Pilate, using the Jewish leaders, using uh, Judas, using the Roman soldiers, all to fulfill the prophets, uh, the prophecies in the Old Testament. The exact fulfillment of prophecies that we see in Psalm uh, 24, for example. Oh, the God is so wise. And he does it exactly when it's supposed to happen. It happened on, on, on the right day when the, the sacrificial lamb was, was slaughtered. When it, its blood was shed and Christ's blood was shed also. They could have executed him on another day. On a Thursday, on a Wednesday. Who knows? But it happened on the Friday. The day when the sacrificial lamb was slaughtered. Not even the evil people, the, the enemies of God could stop God's perfect timing for everything. His wisdom in it. And there's, that's where I want to go lastly. God's providence in salvation. Let's look at this important point before we close. God's wisdom in salvation. Because ultimately, God's wisdom is seen in the salvation of his people. That is the ultimate example where we can see God's wisdom. We, we, I, I mentioned it, I don't know if you remember, but when we had the sermon on God's omnipotence, how, how God's power is greatly seen in creation. I mean, that God has created the whole universe just by speaking it into existence. He spoke and it was. That is a great demonstration of God's power. But I also said, if you remember, that an even greater demonstration of God's power is the salvation of his people. Why? Because in creation, there was no one to oppose him. There was no devil. There was no unbelievers. There was no nothing. He, it was only God. And he spoke and he was. Yet in salvation, there is so much, so much opposition. There is the devil trying to deceive the world. There is the world trying to do everything in its power to stop the gospel. And there is the unbeliever himself or herself who doesn't want to believe, who loves sin and hates God. Yet God accomplishes salvation. It is a 
the greatest demonstration of God's power. And in the same way, God's wisdom is most clearly displayed in the salvation of his people. Uh, so I, I, I know that we are familiar with our salvation. We know the story. We know the reasons behind it. At least we should know why God did the way he did. Why he sent his son to die. Why it was accomplished in the, the way it was accomplished. When it was accomplished. But even though we know all these things, even though we're familiar to them, I don't want us to turn off and be like, okay, I know this. Because I, I, I'll, just, I'll just listen with one ear. Listen with both ears. God is speaking most clearly. He's communicating his wisdom most clearly in the salvation of you, of your soul, of his whole people. Let's not turn off. Let's not be uh, lazy. So let's have a look at a text. I, I've been poor at looking at texts this Sunday. But let's look at one. 1 Corinthians 1, we should be very familiar with. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Let's turn there. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. <clears throat> We'll read from verse 18. A few years ago when I started preaching through 1 Corinthians, uh, I, we of course went through this text as well. You Maybe you remember, you who were here, how we, we came to this text. And uh, this verse preceding verse 18 is verse 17 where, where Paul says that Christ did not send me to baptize but to preach the gospel. So that is, that is what we where we are in the text, the, the context of it, God, uh, God, Paul explains to the Corinthians the main objective of his ministry is to preach the gospel. It's not to baptize, but to preach the gospel. How? Not with cleverness of speech, but in that the cross of Christ would not be made void. So, from this, from, from saying that this is the, my main objective, this is why I'm here, this is why I exist, he launches into a jubilation of the wisdom of God in using a seemingly foolish, foolish message to save his people. So let's read verse 18 down through 31. Let's read to the end of the chapter. Verse 18 through 31. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where's the wise man? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed Jews ask for signs, and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than man, and the weakness of God is stronger than man. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen. 
the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, so that, just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. And we could go on, we could go into chapter 2 and revisit this text that deals with the, the wisdom of, of God, the wisdom of men. We, had, we, we spent a lot of time back in a few years ago when we preached or we looked at these texts. But let, let's focus on this, the ending here of chapter 1. And I want us to see a couple of things here. First, that God shows his wisdom by working in a way that is counterintuitive to the natural mind. For the wisdom of the world, the, God, the gospel, God's gospel, the gospel of God seems foolish. It's a foolish message. Verse 18, for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. In verse 22 and 23, for indeed Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. Foolishness. Here Paul, Paul shows us how God makes a spectacle of the wisdom of the world. He takes their wisdom and turns it upside down. He triumphs over it by uh, using a message that for them seems foolish. Seems like stupid. It's stupid. How can you believe that? How can you believe in a, in a savior who's dead? How can you believe in a God who dies? How? We, I don't know if you remember from, from that text, but I, I mentioned an example of a, of a graffiti they had found in, in Rome where, where they had uh, uh, mocked a Christian, a Christian soldier, I believe it was, and they had said that something in the lines that he believes in a dead God. This was a foolish message to the Gentiles and to those who didn't believe. And still is. It's still mocked. It's still looked down upon. You're not being looked, viewed as the smart person in the room if you say that you're a Christian. You say that you're a Christian and they will be like, oh, stupid man, stupid woman. How can you believe that? How can you be so foolish? It is foolish to those who perish. But to us who believe, it is the wisdom of God and the power of God. What a magnificent way of God to show his wisdom. To use that which seems foolish to save his people. To literally make it impossible for the wise of this world. They, they would not and they could not be saved because it... It is counterintuitive to them. Their whole being screams that this is wrong. This, is, this cannot be. God cannot be dead. God, can, God cannot die. So God uses the foolish things to save his people. And Jesus himself praises the Father for, 
for this wise master plan and he hides it from those who are wise. He hides it from those who are great. He says in Matthew eleven twenty five, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and revealed them to infants. Not literal infants, but infants in wisdom, infants in worldly understanding. He has hidden it. He has literally put blindfolds on those people who say they are wise, who come with their wisdom, their philosophies, their understandings, and he hides it from them because they have chosen their way, their wisdom. And it is not the way that God has for them. So God, first of all, triumphs over the wisdom of the world by saving people for a foolish message. Now, second of all, Christ is called the wisdom of God. <clears throat> Again, verses 22 through 24. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to Jews, a stumbling block and the Gentiles foolishness. But for those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Jesus, in his essence, is God. He has all the qualities of God. He has all the, the characteristics, the attributes of God. He is all-powerful. He is all-knowing. He is everywhere present. He is holy. He is righteous and all that. And he has all wisdom. So Jesus is, of course, the wisdom of God in the sense that he is God. But there is more to it. It's not just... Paul is not only giving us a... a an example that Jesus is God, but he's showing us something more. He's, he's, uh, he's, he's showing us that Christ is the visible example, the visible uh, thing that we can look to, to see the wisdom of God. We have a person that we can, we can focus our eyes on, we can see the wisdom of God. Wisdom is not an attribute that you can see. We talk about wisdom, we, it's, it's abstract, but the wisdom of God is visible in a person. And even though he's not here and we can touch him and see him and all that, we have the word of God which shows the wisdom of God to us in the person of Jesus Christ. That is a privilege. That is not a privilege that all people have had throughout history. But we have it. We see Jesus. He is our Savior. He is revealed to us. We see the wisdom of God in and thus we can also understand, if not fully, we can understand something of the wisdom of God in salvation. We can look to the one who was crucified for our sakes. And we can marvel at it. And we can understand how God uses different means. The crucifixion of Christ he uses, uses enemies to God to accomplish salvation we can actually see it we can see it before our eyes we can look at the text we can picture the things happening we can see Christ being crucified the wisdom of God and we can apply it to ourselves so we can understand God's wisdom in some way and that wisdom resolved an ultimate dilemma, an ultimate problem. The ultimate problem that we all should 
at some point in our life have thought and, and pondered and marveled at how could God solve this dilemma? What is that dilemma? The ultimate question that how can God, who is holy and righteous and hates sin, pardon and declare righteous those who are sinners? How can a sinner come into the presence of God and be declared righteous? Ultimate dilemma. How can we be saved? If God is truly holy, sin-free, if he requires punishment for sins, if it is, as the Bible says, the soul who sins will die, how can we come before God? How can we be declared righteous? How, God, are you going to be the justifier of the wicked and still be just? There is a problem here, Lord. How do you solve that? This is the last we will look at before we close. So let's turn to one last text. Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. We'll read from verse 21. Chapter 3, verse 21 and forward. And actually, we could see the dilemma starting earlier in verse 9 already. Paul says, are we better than they? Not, not at all, for we have all charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. All are under sin. Jews and Greeks, even the people of God, the Jews, are under sin. And just to make it even more clear, he says that there is no, no one good. There is no one good. No Jews, no Greeks, no one. Not even Moses, not even Joseph, no one, not even one. Paul really hammers down the, the truth that there is no good people. There is no one who is just before God in his own power. So, and then he concludes in verse 20. <clears throat> because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. No flesh can be justified by the works of the law. So what then? Are we all going to hell? Are, is there no hope for us? Are we all lost? Let's read verse 21. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested through, uh, manifested being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate His righteousness, because in the forbearance of God He passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of His righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. You know how there's a monumental shift in a text? is when Paul uses the word but. But. He has said that all are under sin. Everybody is. No one, no one can, can be justified through the, the works of the law. But. We shift. We put it in another gear. We go from reverse, we put it in uh, first gear. We shift, we go in a different direction. But now, 
but now apart from the law the righteousness of God has been manifested this is the big truth that Paul reveals here here is God's wisdom coming through the text God's righteousness the only righteousness which can uh, be in the presence of God is God's righteousness the only one that is allowed in his presence has been manifested it has it's here it's been manifested it's not just with God it's it's right here how how has it been manifested what, 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 what who do we need to look to verse 22 the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe God has set his wisdom God in his wisdom has set forth his own righteousness in a person in a person and is available it's not just for us to look at and, and marvel but it is actually available through faith faith in Jesus Christ God's righteousness is there God's ticket to heaven if you like God's ticket to his presence is there in Jesus Christ through faith just like that yes being justified by as a gift by his grace it's a gift it is not earned it is a gift it's a gift from God it's given by grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus so that being saved being redeemed by Jesus we also have the righteousness of God it is a, a, a package deal you get salvation you get redemption you're forgiven your sins and you're for, you're given the righteousness of God a righteousness that is absolutely required if you're gonna be in the presence of God not your own press your own righteousness Jesus righteousness God's righteousness it's included it's right there it's a package deal but how can this be how how can we how can God's law be fulfilled how can God's righteous anger be uh, appeased next verse whom God displayed as a propitiation in his blood through faith here is God's law fulfilled here is uh, justice here is God's requirement for penalty to be paid all satisfied in the sin-bearing Lamb of God Christ with his blood made propitiation for the people of God the word propitiation is literally mercy seat God or Jesus mercy seated himself he's he's the um, you know the lid on the on the uh, uh, the, the ark the ark of the covenant in the temple or in the tabernacle he mercy seated himself it's it's the place where the high priest entered into once a year to to uh, spread to sprinkle the blood for his own sins for the sins of the people to atone for them it happened on the day of atonement Yom Kippur but Jesus has not entered into the holy of holies in, in a physical earthly temple or tabernacle he has entered into the 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 real temple into the real holy of holies not with the blood of bulls and goats but with his own blood he has mercy seated himself he has shed his blood on that mercy seat he sprinkled it for his people's sake so that there will never be another 
penalty to be paid. There will never be another required sacrifice for the sins committed. It is finished. It is perfect. It is God's wisdom in salvation. It is the only way to remove sin is by the shedding of blood. By the fruit of sacrificial lamb. Who takes the blame. Who takes the punishment. Who pays the penalty that we could not pay. And in this way, God can remain just and be the justifier of those who believe. How unimaginable is this? How can anyone come up with such a plan? Such a plan of salvation? How can anyone have such wisdom to accomplish such a salvation? A perfect, finished salvation for all those who believe. It is no wonder that Paul launches into a thanksgiving in, at the, towards the end of this book in chapter 11. Where he says, oh the depth and the riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who became his counselor? Who has first given to him that, that it might be paid back to him? For, for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever. Oh, let us in the same way praise God this Sunday for this unspeakable wisdom of salvation through Jesus Christ. Let us praise him and end there with a word of prayer. All right, let's pray, beloveds. Dear God, we cannot even express the marvel, the, uh, the praise that we want to lift up to you, the wisdom of you, Lord. Oh, God, that you have saved us through Jesus Christ, the ultimate display of wisdom. God, how can we thank you? How can we express our gratitude to you? But we want to do it, Lord. Help us to do it. Help us to be witnesses to the world who rejects you, who thinks that you are foolish, who thinks that the message of the cross is foolish. Lord, still let us proclaim it. Proclaim Christ crucified. Oh God, that you would be merciful to those who don't believe in you, who have heard, the, who heard this message this Sunday, who have deemed it foolish. Lord, speak to their hearts. Open their minds that they might see and understand. Remove the blindfold. Oh, God, save them. Thank you, Lord, again for the gift of salvation. For Christ Jesus, our Lord. For the fellowship of the saints. For this opportunity to be here this Sunday to worship you. We thank you, Lord, and we praise you in your wisdom. In Jesus' name. Amen.